You could be seated. Well, this weekend, Good Friday and this Easter Sunday, we're looking at how the death and resurrection of Jesus was all according to plan, according to the scriptures. It was foretold and foreshadowed, and it didn't come out of nowhere. Now, we Christians might be quite familiar with that, but we can never take it for granted. It is part of what we have received, what we have believed. It's what, it's what we need reminding of as Christians. It's what we must hold fast to as Christians. And we get that language of receiving, believing, being reminded, and holding fast to. We get that language from 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Well, on Good Friday, Pastor Chase showed us how Psalm 22 in the Old Testament foreshadowed the death of Christ upon the cross and that a thousand years before it actually took place. So Psalm 22 is an example of how Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But 1 Corinthians 15 also says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Which raises the question, which scriptures? Does the Old Testament foretell or foreshadow that Christ would rise on the third day? If so, where? Christian scholars debate this very point. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar who has a, an 800-page book on the resurrection that is generally excellent. He suggests that in 1 Corinthians 15.4, Paul doesn't have any specific Old Testament texts in mind. He's just referring generally to the entire Old Testament testimony when he says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But maybe more can be said than that. Maybe we can point to specific parts of the Old Testament which foretell and foreshadow this very thing that we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus. After all, 1 Corinthians 15 is not alone in saying it. Listen to Jesus' words just after the resurrection, which he delivered to the disciples in the upper room. In Luke 24, he said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, a way of describing the whole summary of the Old Testament, everything written about me there must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said, Thus it is written in those Old Testament passages 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, if I were trying to persuade you of the historical veracity of the bodily, physical, literal resurrection of Jesus, I might point to the eyewitnesses or the sheer number of the eyewitnesses or the unlikely first witnesses, the women. I might point to the empty tomb or the missing body. I might point to the fact that the early disciples weren't actually looking for a resurrection and were rather slow to believe in it. I might point to the fact that the followers of, of Jesus, once they were convinced of it, wouldn't shake it, even when killed for it. But I might also point to the inner coherence of the Bible as telling one grand story, one which anticipated resurrection hope in a variety of ways over hundreds and hundreds of years. The Bible is a unique religious book. Some religions have a sacred book which is a collection of sayings, of religious teachings that have been gathered from here and there. But coherence and interconnectivity isn't that relevant to that religious system. Other religious sacred books come to us through a human author, even if divinely guided, like Muhammad. And others have documents or tablets that floated down from heaven or were delivered by an angel. But the Bible is unique in that it is written, humanly speaking, by 40-plus authors spanning 1,500 years, and yet there is a remarkable interconnectivity and intercoherence to it, which Christians believe points to the dual authorship of Scripture, that it was written by human beings and by God. Did you know that there are over 63,000 cross-references in the Bible? A cross-reference is when one part of the Bible refers to something somewhere else in the Bible. Did you know that that happens almost 64,000 times in this book? And this is what it might look like visually. This is a graphic that a computer scientist, Chris Harrison, has put together. Each of those little white or gray lines at the bottom represent books and chapters of the Bible. And he did the laborious but beautiful work of connecting the dots 63,000 times plus. It is beautiful, isn't it? It's majestic. It's the kind of thing that is simply too much for a bunch of religious hucksters to pull off. It has a divine fingerprint about it. And the most decisive, the most important three-day span is the cross and resurrection of Jesus, hinted at and anticipated for millennia before it happened and then discussed and explained and applied to Christians for decades, over 27 books after it took place. 
So here's what I want to do in the rest of my time with you this morning. Yes, that was just introduction so far, believe it or not. In the rest of our time, I want us to dig deep into that phrase, 1 Corinthians 15.4 shows us that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, asking ourselves, was Jesus' resurrection really anticipated, foreshadowed, foretold in the scriptures that came before it? If so, where and how? Now, this will be a bit unusual for us here at this church because we're usually in one primary passage. But you can think of it this way. We're taking this one primary passage of 1 Corinthians 15.4 and we are exposing it. We are expounding it. We're exploring what it might mean. And that will take us all over the Bible. Now, rest assured, we won't chase down 63,000 cross-references. But... I will refer to about a dozen passages in the Bible that Paul may have had in mind when he said that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Four P words will help us keep track of our thoughts. The first is the pattern. The pattern. Resurrection hope can be seen in patterns of the Old Testament stories. I'll start with Genesis 22, a story of God testing his servant Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. It's a bizarre story, especially if we miss the narrator's comment right at the beginning that this was only a test. God wasn't going to have Abraham kill his son. In fact, later God would say, that thought never even entered my mind. But it is a test, and it is a test for Abraham to walk through in a rather dramatic and scary fashion. God sends Abraham and Isaac to a mountain three days' journey away. As they go, the drama and the tension escalate, culminating with Abraham raising a knife above his son. And it's then that God steps in. God intervenes. God stops him. And God provides a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, a ram. Now, this not only sets the pattern for substitute sacrifices in the Bible which would be fully realized in the substitute sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross in our place for our sins. But the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 also sets the pattern for resurrection in the Bible. And we get this from the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews comments on Genesis 22 and says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. We wonder, how could he do that? How could he have offered up Isaac? How could he lift up the knife? Well, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's how Abraham could do that. Because he believed God was able to raise his son from the dead. I mean, God had earlier promised to Abraham that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would run through Isaac specifically. 
He had to live, even if he died, if the promises would remain intact. And wouldn't you know, there are actually clues in the Genesis 22 account itself that hint at the resurrection hope. When Abraham left his servants to go up to the mountain with his boy, he said to those servants, stay here. The boy and I will go up to the mountain and make sacrifice, and we will return. Plural, we will return. Not I will return because I'm going to slaughter him there. We will return. So Genesis 22 is not predicting the resurrection of Jesus. It's not prophecy, but it's setting the pattern of resurrection hope. And let's not forget that it took place on a third day. It was after a three-day journey. And you might be thinking, Ryan, are you really going there? Are you really going to try to tie three days in Genesis 22 to the third day of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, if Genesis 22 were the only place where third day was a big deal, then no, I wouldn't. But it's not the only place. Far from it. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah, that prophet, was swallowed by a giant fish, and he remained in the belly of that fish for how many days? Three days. And Jesus himself connects the Jonah experience with his death and resurrection by way of three days. Matthew 12. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Jonah story didn't predict the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it was part of the pattern that led to the death and resurrection of Jesus. For Jonah, it wasn't an actual death that he went through, but it was a near death, a near death experience in a burial like situation of being in the fish, but coming out rescued on the other side, and all this having taken place over three days. There are other quick examples of three days that are important in the Bible. Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan and entered Canaan on the third day. Hezekiah, that godly king, had a near-death illness, and he prayed, and he was healed on the third day. Esther interceded for the people on the third day. He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Life occurs on the third day. The pattern is everywhere. Especially in Hosea 6. Listen to this. Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hosea is talking about the days following the exile. Now, the exile would take a whole lot longer than two days, a whole lot longer than three days. Those are figurative words. But literally, they become the pattern that Jesus fulfills 
in a real third-day resurrection. You fast-forward hundreds of years after Hosea, and this guy Jesus shows up and begins predicting that he's going to die and that he'll be raised, and he specifies each time that it will be on the third day. You can read Mark 8 and 9 and 10, three predictions each time. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, and they will kill him there, and on the third day, he will rise again. Or as he said in John 2, destroy the temple of my body, and on the third day, I will raise it up again. Or you think of that pattern in Ezekiel 37, that vision of a battlefield filled with dry bones. And then the bones begin to rattle together. And Ezekiel sees sinews upon these bones and muscle and tendon and flesh. And then it is an army standing erect and ready, alive, That was a vision of Israel's future, telling God's people that he is able to rise, raise them from the dead. God is able to raise up a people for himself from a field of dry bones. But that set a pattern that the ultimate Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, would later fulfill. So we see that there is a pattern of resurrection hope in the Old Testament, often connected to a third day. Secondly, let's talk about the prophecies. Prophecies. This will take less time because there isn't a story involved in each of the passages that I'll refer us to. These are prophecies. They foretell. They were written by the prophets. They actually predict something that's coming in the future. Like Isaiah 25, verse 8, which says this mind-blowing statement. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away. Death? No more? Death? Swallowed up? You might be thinking, that's too big of a promise. That's not reality. I mean, I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but people are dying in Ukraine and and you see other headlines. People die. I went to a funeral two weeks ago. People die. What do you mean God will swallow up death forever? Well, that's what's going to come, and it's still to come, but Jesus in his death and resurrection is what the New Testament calls the first fruits of that. He's the down payment on that. He's the first one to go through that, death In resurrection, eternal life, in a glorified body. He's the first of his kind. We know that's coming eventually, death no more, because Jesus went through death and conquered death already. So Isaiah 26 says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. You say, that's talking about plural people, not one person, Jesus. Yes, but again, resurrection hope that will one day be experienced in the end is sure because Jesus has gone through it already. 
Or think of Isaiah 53, that most famous prophecy of the cross. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's Friday. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's all Friday. But here is Sunday. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's Sunday. Out of the anguish of his soul. Well, that's Friday. But here comes Sunday. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That is Friday and Sunday together. Or just one more under this heading, Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is what is coming for all of us. This life is not all of life. There's more on the other side. We know this because Jesus went through it and came out the other side. We know this, and now Jesus will either bring us to himself into that eternal life, or by virtue of his resurrection, he will be this world's judge. The resurrection, hear this, if you're not yet a Christian, the resurrection of Jesus is in some ways a bit of a confrontation to us all. What are you going to do with this man who went through death and came out the other side alive? He's no one to trifle with. He's no myth. He's no spring flower. He's no joke. He's the risen and reigning Christ and this world's judge, but also this world's savior. Third, the Psalms. The Psalms, we can consider the Psalms. The Psalms are personal, corporate, praise and lament songs, and sometimes they get darn near prophetic. So we could lean on several psalms to show a pattern, a, a predictive, prophetic pattern of resurrection hope. We could use Psalm 22, which Chase used on Friday to show primarily a foreshadow of the cross of Jesus in the sufferings of David. But remember, that psalm went through the near-death experience of David, took a turn towards hope and redemption and life in such a way that Psalm 22 could be an example of that pattern of resurrection hope evidenced in the near-death experience, but saving power of God in the life of David. Or, or we could use Psalm 16. Let me direct our attention there. Another psalm of David. It's another lament, like Psalm 22. And there's another turn in Psalm 16, like in Psalm 22, moving from lament to confidence and joy. And then it says this, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, how can David say this? He says too much. God was faithful to preserve him for a time. This psalm actually speaks of temporary protection and preservation. But David died. Eventually, he died. Just like all of us, he died. David misspoke unless he spoke better than he knew. And that's what Acts 2 says. Peter picks Psalm 16 up and uses it to explain the resurrection to us. After quoting the verses of Psalm 16 that I just read, you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Right after that, he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Do you see the Old Testament coherence do you see the interconnectivity of the bible it argues for the resurrection of jesus in patterns in prophecies in psalms and now a fourth p let's talk about the purpose what's the purpose of it all what's the purpose of the resurrection what is it why was it needed what was god up to in the resurrection Well, it was not a magic trick. It was not God just showing off. It was was not God merely proving that God always wins. Even if you kill his son, don't worry, he's got a plan B. certainly wasn't just to communicate to us that you can't keep a good man down or that there are happy endings to sad stories. The resurrection of Jesus does many things. The resurrection of Jesus, maybe most foundationally, addresses that age-old problem of death. The book of Genesis began by saying, the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And we've been studying the book of Genesis as a church in recent days, and we've been seeing death all over the place. Like Genesis 5, it's so emblematic there, where it gives a genealogy. It says, this guy lived so many years, and he died. And then this guy lived so many years, and he died. And then he had this son, and he lived so many years, and he died. It becomes this, this haunting mantra. It's God saying, I told you so. Sin brings death. And we are painfully aware of that every day. We are under a sentence of death. We rightly hate death. Death feels to us like it's on the horizon of all of our lives. Death feels like it has swallowed up our loved ones who've died before us. And it it hurts. 
And Jesus came to conquer death. Jesus came to defeat death so that when we go through it, it's not really death. It's actually the passage to heaven. It's actually the way to his presence. It's a whole new world. It's a new beginning. Jesus transforms death for all who believe and trust in him so that we don't have to be afraid of death, so we don't have to think that death is the end, so we don't have to think that death got another one again. It's him bringing us home. Jesus conquered death. That's what the resurrection's all about. The resurrection also means that the sacrifice upon the cross, that Good Friday, that sacrifice has been accepted by God the Father. His saving work is finished. It did work. We can trust it. How do we know? He was raised on the third day just as it was patterned and prophesied and in the Psalms that it would be so. In light of the resurrection of Jesus, he sends his people out on mission into the world with power and authority to share that news, that message with the world. He sends us out in resurrection power. I'm not even sure exactly what that means. I can tell you I don't feel like I have resurrection power. But the Bible says it. The Bible says it. And one day it'll be fully realized. What we, what we don't now see and feel, one day will be fully real. That's just awesome. The resurrection means that this is only the beginning that a whole new world awaits us. Jesus has inaugurated that whole new world in his death and resurrection. We call all this that I'm talking about this morning the gospel. The good news, that's what the word gospel means. And that's what Paul was unpacking for those Corinthians to take us back to our first passage, 1 Corinthians 15. He talked about the gospel, which he preached to them, which they had received, in which they are standing, and by which they're being saved, to which they should keep holding fast. This gospel, in accordance with the scriptures, that Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day, Again, in accordance with the scriptures. Oh, the beautiful inner coherence and inner connectivity of the Bible with its almost 64,000 cross-references and only maybe a dozen or so we've talked about this morning. Would you today hear this message? Receive it. Stand on it. Cling to it perhaps for the very first time. We pray you would. And Christian, you have come to believe this, receive this, stand on it, keep standing on it. Remember it, rehearse it, never tire of it, never think that it's 
kindergarten in the Christian life, and what else do you have? Give me something more interesting, something I don't know about. This is what is most fundamental. This is of first importance, Paul said. It's always of first importance. It's the most fundamental, most, most radical and awesome thing in the whole world. And it's ours. And we can trust it because his word, the Bible, tells us so. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we certainly don't get everything in the Bible, let alone those things that are not covered by the Bible. It is a mystery. But what we've come to learn, what we've come to know, what we've come to receive and stand upon and embrace and cling to, it is wondrous. It is a wondrous mystery. Help us this morning to behold it with new and fresh eyes, with awe and wonder, with faith and confidence in you, our Savior, who died and was raised according to the scriptures. Amen.